0: Chapter Twelve of the Lost Stradivarius. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ralph Snelson. The Lost Stradivarius by John Meade Faulkner. Chapter Twelve. The next morning, my maid brought me a hurried note written in pencil by my brother. It contained only a few lines, saying that he found that his continued sojourn at Royston was not beneficial to his health, and had determined to return to Italy. If we wished to write, letters would reach him at the Villa de Angelis. His valet, Parnham, was to follow him thither with his baggage as soon as it could be got together. This was all. There was no word of adieu, even to his wife. We found that he had never gone to bed that night, but in the early morning he had himself saddled his horse, Sentinel, and ridden in to Derby, taking the early mail thence to London. His resolve to leave Royston had apparently been arrived at very suddenly, for so far as we could discover he had carried no luggage of any kind. I could not help looking somewhat carefully around his room to see if he had taken the Stradivarius violin. No trace of it, or even of its case, was to be seen though it was difficult to imagine how he could have carried it with him on horseback. There was indeed a locked traveling trunk which Parnham was to bring with him later, and the instrument might, of course, have been in that. But I felt convinced that he had actually taken it with him in some way or other, and this proved afterwards to have been the case. I shall draw a veil, my dear Edward, over the events which immediately followed your father's departure." Even at this distance of time the memory is too inexpressibly bitter to allow me to do more than briefly allude to them. A fortnight after John's departure we left Royston and removed to Worth, wishing to get some sea air and to enjoy the late summer of the south coast. Your mother seemed entirely to have recovered from her confinement and to be enjoying as good health as could be reasonably expected under the circumstances of her husband's indisposition but suddenly one of those insidious maladies which are incidental to women in her condition seized upon her we had hoped and believed that all such period of danger was already happily passed but alas it was not so and within a few hours of her first seizure all realized how serious was her case everything that human skill can do under such conditions was done but without avail symptoms of blood poisoning showed themselves accompanied with high fever and within a week she was in her coffin though her delirium was terrible to watch yet i thank god to this day that if she was to die it pleased him to take her while in an unconscious condition for two days before her death she recognized no one and was thus spared at least the sadness of passing from life without one word of kindness or even of reconciliation from her unhappy husband. The communication with a place so distant as Naples was not then to be made under fifteen or twenty days, and all was over before we could hope that the intelligence even of his wife's illness had reached John both Mrs. Temple and I remained at Worth in a state of complete prostration awaiting his return. When more than a month had passed without his arrival, or even a letter to say that he was on his way, our anxiety took a new turn, as we feared that some accident had befallen him, or that the news of his wife's death which would then be in his hands had so seriously affected him as to render him incapable of taking any action. To repeated subsequent communications, we received no answer. But at last, to a letter which I wrote to Parnham, the servant replied, stating that his master was still at the Villa de Angelis and in a condition of health little differing from that in which he left Royston, except that he was now slightly paler, if possible, and thinner. It was not till the end of November that any word came from him, AND THEN HE WROTE ONLY ONE PAGE OF A SHEET OF NOTEPAPER TO ME IN PENCIL, MAKING NO REFERENCE WHATEVER TO HIS WIFE'S DEATH, BUT SAYING THAT HE SHOULD NOT RETURN FOR CHRISTMAS, AND INSTRUCTING ME TO DRAW ON HIS BANKERS FOR ANY moneys THAT I MIGHT REQUIRE FOR HOUSEHOLD PURPOSES AT WORTH. I NEED NOT TELL YOU THE EFFECT THAT SUCH CONDUCT PRODUCED ON Mrs. TEMPLE AND MYSELF. YOU CAN EASILY IMAGINE WHAT WOULD HAVE BEEN YOUR OWN FEELINGS IN SUCH A CASE. NOR WILL I RELATE ANY OTHER CIRCUMSTANCES WHICH OCCURRED AT THIS PERIOD, AS THEY WOULD HAVE NO DIRECT BEARING UPON MY NARRATIVE. THOUGH I STILL WROTE TO MY BROTHER AT FREQUENT INTERVALS, AS NOT WISHING TO NEGLECT A DUTY, NO WORD FROM HIM EVER CAME IN REPLY. ABOUT THE END OF March, INDEED, Parnham RETURNED TO WORTH MALTRAVERS, SAYING THAT HIS MASTER HAD PAID HIM A HALF YEAR'S WAGES IN ADVANCE, AND THEN DISPENSED WITH HIS SERVICES. He had always been an excellent servant and attached to the family, and I was glad to be able to offer him a suitable position with us at Worth until his master should return. He brought disquieting reports of John's health, saying that he was growing visibly weaker. Though I was sorely tempted to ask him many questions as to his master's habits and way of life, my pride forbade me to do so but I heard incidentally from my maid that Parnham had told her Sir John was spending money freely in alterations at the Villa d'Angelis and had engaged Italians to attend him, with which his English valet was naturally much dissatisfied. So the spring passed, and the summer was well advanced. On the last morning of July I found waiting for me on the breakfast table an envelope addressed in my brother's hand. I opened it hastily. It only contained a few words, which I have before me as I write now. The ink is a little faded and yellow, but the impression it made is yet vivid as on that summer morning. My dearest Sophie, it began, come to me here at once, if possible, or it may be too late. I want to see you. They say that I am ill and too weak to travel to England. Your loving brother, John." There was a great change in the style from the cold and conventional notes that he had hitherto sent at such long intervals, from the stiff Dear Sophia, and Sincerely Yours, to which I grieved to say I had grown accustomed. Even the writing itself was altered. It was more the bold boyish hand he wrote when first he went to Oxford than the smaller cramped and classic character of his later years, though it was a little matter enough god knows in comparison with his grievous conduct yet it touched me much that he should use again the once familiar dearest sophie and sign himself my loving brother i felt my heart go out towards him and so strong is woman's affection for her own kin that i had already forgotten any resentment and reprobation in my great pity for the poor wanderer lying sick perhaps under death and alone in a foreign land I took this note at once to Mrs. Temple. She read it twice or thrice, trying to take in the meaning of it. Then she drew me to her, and kissing me said, "'Go to him at once, Sophie. Bring him back to Worth. Try to bring him back to the right way.' I ordered my things to be packed, determining to drive to Southampton and take train thence to London.' and at the same time mrs temple gave instructions that all should be prepared for her own return to royston within a few days i knew she did not dare to see john after her daughter's death i took my maid with me and parnum to act as courier at london we hired a carriage for the whole journey and from calais posted direct to naples we took the short route by marseille and genoa and travelled for 17 days without intermission as my brother's note, made me desirous of losing no time on the way. I had never been in Italy before, but my anxiety was such that my mind was unable to appreciate either the beauty of the scenery or the incidents of travel. I can, in fact, remember nothing of our journey now, except the wearisome and interminable jolting over bad robes and the insufferable heat. It was the middle of August in an exceptionally warm summer, and after passing Genoa the heat became almost tropical. There was no relief even at night, for the warm air hung stagnant and suffocating, and the inside of my traveling coach was often like a furnace. We were at last approaching the conclusion of our journey, and had left Rome behind us. The day that we set out from Aversa was the hottest that I have ever felt, THE SUN BEATING DOWN WITH AN ASTONISHING POWER, EVEN IN THE EARLY HOURS, AND THE ROAD BEING THICK WITH A WHITE AND BLINDING DUST. IT WAS SOON AFTER MIDNIGHT THAT OUR CARRIAGE BEGAN RATTLING OVER THE GREAT STONE BLOCKS WITH WHICH THE STREETS OF NAPLES ARE PAVED. THE SUBURBS THAT WE AT FIRST PASSED THROUGH WERE, I REMEMBER, IN DARKNESS AND PERFECT QUIET, BUT AFTER TRAVERSING THE HEART OF THE CITY AND REACHING THE WESTERN SIDE, we suddenly found ourselves in the midst of an enormous and very dense crowd. There were lanterns everywhere, and interminable lanes of booths, whose proprietors were praising their wares with loud shouts, and here acrobats, jugglers, minstrels, black-vested priests, and blue-coated soldiers mingled with a vast crowd whose numbers at once arrested the progress of the carriage. Though it was so late of a Sunday night, all seemed here awake and busy as at noonday. Oil lamps with reeking fumes of black smoke flung a glare over the scene, and the discordant cries and chattering conversation united in so deafening a noise as to make me turn faint and giddy, wearied as I already was with long-traveling though I felt that intense eagerness and expectation which the approaching termination of a tedious journey inspires, and was desirous of pushing forward with all imaginable despatch, yet here our course was sadly delayed. The horses could only proceed at the slowest of foot-paces, and we were constantly brought to a complete stop for some minutes before the post-boy could force a passage through the unwilling crowd. This produced a feeling of irritation and despair of ever reaching my destination, and the mirth and careless hilarity of the people round us chafed with bitter contrast on my depressed spirits. I inquired from the postboy what was the origin of so great a commotion, and understood him to say in reply that it was a religious festival held annually in honor of Our Lady of the Grotto. I cannot, however, conceive of any truly religious person countenancing such a gathering which seemed to me rather like the unclean orgies of a heathen deity than an act of faith of Christian people. This disturbance occasioned us so serious a delay that as we were climbing the steep slope leading up to Posillipo it was already three in the morning, and the dawn was at hand. After mounting steadily for a long time we began to rapidly descend, and just as the sun came up over the sea we arrived at the Villa de I sprang from the carriage and passing through a trellis of vines reached the house. A man-servant was in waiting and held the door open for me, but he was an Italian and did not understand me when I asked in English where Sir John Maltravers was, He had evidently, however, received instructions to take me at once to my brother, and led the way to an inner part of the house. As we proceeded, I heard the sound of a rich alto voice singing very sweetly to a mandolin some soothing or religious melody. The servant pulled aside a heavy curtain, and I found myself in my brother's room. An Italian youth sat on a stool near the door, and it was he who had been singing. At a few words from John, addressed to him in his own language, he set down his mandolin and left the room, pulling to the curtain and shutting a door behind it. The room looked directly on to the sea. The villa was, in fact, built upon rocks at the foot of which the waves lapped. Through two folding windows, which opened on to a balcony, the early light of the summer morning streamed in with a rosy flush. My brother sat on a low couch or sofa propped up against a heap of pillows with a rug of brilliant colors flung across his feet and legs. He held out his arms to me, and I ran to him, but even in so brief an interval I had perceived that he was terribly weak and wasted. All my memories of his past faults had vanished and were dead in that sad aspect of his worn features and in the conviction which I felt even from the first moment that he had but little time longer to remain with us. I knelt by him on the floor, and with my arms round his neck embraced him tenderly, not finding any place for words, but only sobbing in great anguish. Neither of us spoke, and my weariness from long travel and the strangeness of the situation caused me to feel that paralyzing sensation of doubt as to the reality of the scene, and even of my own existence, which all, I believe, have experienced at times of severe mental tension. That I, a plain English girl, should be kneeling here beside my brother in the Italian dawn, that I should read as I believed on his young face the unmistakable image and superscription of death and reflect that within so few months he had married had wrecked his home that my poor constance was no more these things seemed so unrealizable that for a minute i felt that it must all be a nightmare that i should immediately wake with fresh salt air of the channel blowing through my bedroom window at worth and find i had been dreaming but it was not so the light of day grew stronger and brighter and even in my sorrow the panorama of the most beautiful spot on earth, the Bay of Naples, with Vesuvius lying on the far side, as seen then from these windows, stamped itself forever on my mind. It was unreal as a scene in some brilliant dramatic spectacle, but alas, no unreality was here. The flames of the candles in their silver sconces waxed paler and paler, the lines and shadows on my brother's face grew darker, and the power of his wasted features showed more striking in the bright rays of the morning sun. End of chapter 12